0: Hello Data People, and welcome to Data Fem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm your host, Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm super, super excited for this episode I'm about to share with you. It is sponsored by my friends at Lander Analytics. I'm going to be sharing a whole segment of the episode. That will tell you about how to register for the upcoming R conference in New York that yours truly is speaking at, along with one of the guests of this show. We'll also give you a brief lowdown of what Lander Analytics does, how it started, and opportunities that the company provides for statistical programmers, data scientists, engineers. All of us nerds that just love to program and code in R. But for right now, I'm going to bring in this episode's three lovely guests, Ijimaka, Asma, and Mallory. And we're going to get started talking about data science careers and events, specifically the R conference in September, but also the community that surrounds R. And it'll be really cool to hear what these ladies have to say. so great to have y'all here. It's 6 p.m. in New Orleans. I know it's 4 p.m. for two of you and 7 p.m. for one of you. I personally have a glass of wine in my hand because this is a celebration. All of us coming together to talk about data science. So I thought we'd start off kind of simple with a little round table. Um, Everyone shares how they got into data science. My audience, they just love to know. A lot of them are already executives at data science companies or tech companies or fashion companies, but I would say an equal, if not larger, amount of DataFem listeners are shopping the data science field, and they want to know what y'all's paths were to see if that's something that they relate to and that they think they might like. Do you want to start us off with How I found data science
1: is in, I guess like my previous career, but I feel like it's all part of the same career trajectory now. It kind of makes sense in hindsight. Um, I used to work in a health tech startup and I was on the operations team. But the only way to like truly be successful on that team, even though we call ourselves operations, is you have to work with data so much. And we tended to be like all like mini product managers. And I was on a project where we were trying to proactively identify people with specific care needs for like internal care management, like a care navigator product we had. And I was doing all of it in like Excel. So I was essentially like crunching claims data using some of the craziest Excel formulas I could never create now, but like Excel was my jam then. And it kept crashing my computer and um, they brought a data scientist onto the team. And I was like, I don't know if I have to keep living life this way. Like, this is kind of absurd. And she was like, yes, crunching millions of claims say that in Excel every day is absurd. <laughs> um, so she introduced me to Python, because that was the language of choice amongst the data team at Collective Health. By working with her, I started to learn more about like how a lot of the things I was doing was already like kind of like data analytics, like saying like how many people are using the product. It was one of those things where like I was doing it already, but then someone put a name to it. Interestingly, even though I'm like full R 100%, that is my jam. uh, My first language actually was Python.
0: Well, what made you want to choose R over Python, I say deviously?
1: So I, while I was at Collective Health, I applied for my master's in public health in epidemiology and biostatistics. And I attended a panel at UC Berkeley where I ended up going. And they asked all the like current grad students what was one of their like biggest regrets, like if they could do it again. And all of them said they wish they came into the program knowing R. <laughs> and I was like... Ooh, Okay, like this is like a sign. I like used R a couple times, but like I didn't really know it. I spent the summer learning it and I find it in a way a lot more intuitive than Python. Like I think if I have to go back to Python now, now that I actually get what is object oriented programming, I would be better at it. But before I was just blindly doing stuff and hoping for the best. Um, and so I just really enjoyed that about R. I think also, like, setting up and getting running with R is 10 times easier than setting up and getting running with Python. And also, I think it's the community.
0: The community is a big aspect for me, too, and we're definitely going to come back to that, and all of us can weigh in. Asma, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: So, I'm Asma. The way I discovered data science was by just wanting to be more of a pain in the ass online than I already was. So I got into data (laughs) science through sports and just wanted to be, I guess, more upset about sports than I was already at baseline. And the way to do that and a good way to do that is to start digging into the numbers for your team and for your opponents. I just got into that through hockey because I played hockey growing up and and that was tons of fun. I I went to school in, in Montreal. So That's really the only sport they got going on over there, and the winters are really long, so I just found myself, like, really getting into that culture and and wanting to just explore, like, other aspects of my fandom, and turns out that they do really sophisticated work in sports. Uh, using many of the same statistical techniques that one would use in healthcare and in other industries. So I was also interested in medicine broadly. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I filled my summers with like research opportunities. And so as I was getting better at sports analytics, I was also getting better at the research I was doing, particularly for clinical research. And with time, I just found myself less excited about taking care of patients and more excited about tackling structural issues in healthcare and trying to make them more efficient. It became really clear to me that being proficient with data was one way to do that. So I pivoted and I applied for a data analyst job here in Boston at MGH. Was really lucky to have gotten it, and it was in part because of my work in sports analytics. They were, um, I guess, pretty impressed with with the, with the level uh, that I had acquired through doing random sports projects and also some of the more serious work I had been doing in clinical research. So that was my way into, into data science.
0: I think it's really cool that you found your way in through something else that you were passionate about, sports. The other day I was talking to my mom and she said that it's important that I choose a domain within data science. And I'm like, domain? I'm not in Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, um, but what she meant was there's so many people coming into data science that even if we were already here, it's still a good move. Mallory, it's your turn.
3: My path into data science—I mean, honestly, I—I I just lucked out. I—I I never had a plan. I never had a plan with anything to do with my academics really so I I used to be very into theater and performing arts and I filled all of my time in junior high and high school with plays and musicals and choir and all the stuff Um, and then they told me that I would need a job that makes money and I had done really well in my economics class my senior year so, and I heard it got mathier, which I, I was always good at math. I, I just didn't care about it uh, when I was younger. And everyone already thought it was hard, and I thought it was not hard, and apparently it got harder. I'm like, all right, let's do that. So I ended up in school for economics and then um, also adding in statistics to that. And I, once I graduated undergrad, I was like, well, I'm just going to keep going to school because I'm good at that. And the real world's scary. And also, it's 2010 and the job scene is sketchy. So I just kept going to school. And um, in in grad school, I did economics and statistics. And my focus was in uh, like econometrics and behavioral, microecon, things like that. I wanted to be good at methods. So um, I was getting this statistics master's, Um, I was in school for an econ PhD. And then some things happened and mostly due to physical and mental health reasons, I decided I just had to stop. So I left um, with my two masters. Uh, So my joke about it is like, I had one PhD dropout, so one dropout for, for two degrees, so I net graduated. Ha. Anyway, <laughs> so I was looking for a data, data analyst, because that's what you would call it in school, so you would call it in statistics, it's analytics. So I had to be told to search for jobs with that title, and I did, and uh, then I, I really lucked out and got a job within two months of uh, moving to New York, so I got to move off the couch and have <laughs> my friends move into a, a bigger place that we shared and and uh, the rest is, is history, I guess.
0: Well, I remember when I first discovered you, it was because you invented this really kick-ass Twitter model for the New York R and DC R conferences. And I'm like, I got to know this girl because my two favorite things are Twitter and R stats. And I was just so excited because What your calculus model did was make this whole Twitter engagement into a competition, a friendly competition, I would hope, where all of us attendees would compete for not only the most Twitter engagements, but the best, the most quality, the ones that get the most responses from other attendees. So I was really impressed with that. When you explained how it worked with calculus, I'm not sure I followed completely, but I would love to hear more in detail about that at some point (laughs) in the future, and it really showed me how you're thinking outside of the box with data science and making something really fun and relatable. I know some of you already answered this to some extent in your intros, but as this is a panel-type structure, I would love to go around and ask all of you what your favorite part of data science is before we get into more individual questions?
2: The memes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do make an effort in surrounding myself with with really good people. Um, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. The art community is awesome. And I, yeah, I just, I love the communal aspect of it all and just how much fun we have pretty much on a daily basis. I think it has really carried me through this pandemic, honestly. I feel like for
1: me, it's um, that it's so incredibly broad. Um, Some like kind of like criticism I've (laughs) received before. It's that I'm interested in a lot of different things. Like I'm not someone who specializes in any way. Like I'm constantly trying different things. And that's what I kind of like about data science where I'm like, This week, I have absolutely no interest in talking about stats, so I'm going to do a lot of, like, more developer-type things, like working on, like, building, like, pipelines or, like, stuff like that. Then there's some weeks where I'm, like, if you say the word pipeline to me, I'll kill you. I'm going to go read a stats (laughs) textbook. (laughs) Um, Also, like, getting to do some things about, like, communicating data where it's, like, I really care more about, like, this week, like, making sure, like, I get all these presentations right and stuff like that. So it really allows me to like flex and participate in a lot of different skills because I am someone who, if I had a job where I was doing like one very focused thing every single day, I would like shrivel up from boredom. So I like the fact that it requires you to be kind of multidisciplinary and that excites me more. I could not
3: agree more with with all of that, especially uh, wanting to strangle someone when you just Don't even, don't even say the word pipeline to me right now. Um, (laughs) Totally relatable. Um, But I guess I have like three sort of favorite components of the process. And I, I have always been a very creative person and a very curious person. And one of, I have, I have some mottos that I rattle, rattle off regularly and one of them is things have reasons and when i can't understand why something is happening i might there has to be a reason things have reasons and once i understand the reason for something like oh my god yes things have reasons and i just want to know the reason the how the why of whatever it is in front of me so that in general is just like a motivating um factor that fuels my um that fuels me even when i do have to think about pipelines when i don't want to think about pipelines um and when the process is becoming extremely tedious and as as it does um, it is a generally tedious job in general but the curiosity um really i guess fuels me along the way when i would otherwise need to stop Um, but the things i enjoy the most about the process is Influencing the direction of exploration, like what is worth exploring and getting to decide um, at least some of the time, uh, what, what even are we going to look at? What even uh, are the questions that are, that are worth asking um, that I enjoy very much? And then exploring the hypothesis itself, like listening to the data and following it wherever it happens to lead and and being the first one to like discover some piece of knowledge that has just been sitting there quietly in a data set and nobody knows it yet, though. And to be to be the one actually uncovering something and have all this knowledge um, before you present it to anyone else, and, and you only present such a small amount, there's like so much that you get to learn, and you're the first one to learn it. And some of it dies with you because it wasn't ever worth sharing.
0: (laughs) You work for Amazon. So I'd like you to describe your title um, and just, you know, what you do. My
3: role with Amazon, so I am part of a team called the Customer Packaging Experience Team. And I was um, originally introduced to this team through a consulting company and I was brought in as a data science consultant and worked with this team for a little while before I joined them uh, properly as a full-time Amazon employee. And the Amazon packaging is a lot. It's so historically, I've worked with data that's generated from end users of some app or some some something. I typically have worked with people data, thought about people incentives, what different, what did do, do different types of people like and how our preferences and affinities, how do they reveal themselves in the data at hand? And and this is something else entirely. So my work is, is focused on identifying the best packaging type for products sold or fulfilled by Amazon. So this amounts to the question, what is the minimally sufficient packaging required
0: to get your order to you without breaking it? As I mentioned before, the sponsor for this episode of Datafam is Lander Analytics. And as promised, I want to tell you a little bit more about them. There's a pretty good chance that a lot of you listening to this work at a company or manage a company that's looking to drive value from data to make smarter decisions for better business outcomes. This is Lander Analytics' power area. They're based in New York City, and they offer data science consulting services, infrastructure setup, and hands-on training for clients looking to grow the analytical capabilities of their organization. I've met a lot of their team. They're a really exciting bunch, and they're a very multi-talented group. The team's filled with elite data scientists, statisticians, visual designers, published authors, professors, and management consultants that are all united by their shared talent and passion for leveraging data science to meet real-world challenges. Of course, if you want to find out more than this little tidbit, you can go to landeranalytics.com to get more information. The specific opportunity I want to tell you about has to do with the fact that Lander Analytics is also a recognized leader in the open source community. They host popular events like the R Conferences, which you've probably heard me talk about a lot on DataFam. They're held in New York and Washington DC annually. I've been to both virtually, but I cannot wait because this year's New York Conference will be held in person and virtually for those who can attend on September 9th and 10th. Yours truly is one of the very, very fortunate speakers, along with Asma, who you've gotten to know so far on this episode. So it'll be really, really great. And I would love if as many of you hearing this attend and give support to conferences starting up again. This is going to be fantastic. And the best part is that DataFem listeners get a discount off the conference. So you can visit rstats.ai, which I will also put in the show notes, to learn more about the conference and what you'll experience, as well as purchase tickets. The promo code DATAFEM20 will give you 20% off your order. That's D A T A F E M M E to zero to get 20% off tickets for the 2021 New York R Conference at rstats.ai. You are not going to want to miss this. I would love to meet as many of you as possible in person, finally. And I have a special treat for you. Why am I selling this amazing event when I can talk to somebody who not only is a data science force to be reckoned with, but also came up with the idea of these wonderful events and the wonderful company that is Lander Analytics. I'm gonna bring Jared Lander, Lander Analytics Chief Data Scientist, on the line right now. Can you tell us more about the services Lander Analytics offers to clients, especially to grow their data science capabilities?
4: We help clients with anything touching data, whether that's setting up databases or fitting machine learning models, and in between like forecasting, designing ETL processes, installing and supporting data science environments. And we also offer advisory on data initiatives, help build dashboards, and even do training for employees.
0: How does your team work? I know like a lot of y'all are remote and spread out. Um, Is that still the case? Are you kind of moving back into an office setup? I don't really know. I've only known y'all to be remote.
4: Yep, we're still remote. And when we do return to our office, it's going to be a smaller crew of people as other people have moved over to California or the far end of Long Island and it works for us. We've always been a company that had a core group of people in the office and a number of people outside from anywhere in the world because the nature of this work allows us to work anywhere. We love the collaborative experience but sometimes you just have to be able to work from Ohio if that's where you're living at the time.
0: And what type of organizations do you work with and the types of projects your team will typically take on? Like, what does that environment look like?
4: Our clients come from all manner of industry. You know, we're in New York, so of course we have finance and insurance companies. We work a lot with pharmaceuticals and hospitals, sports teams and manufacturers. Basically, anyone who has data, we have likely worked that field. In terms of projects, that covers a broad range as well. Sometimes it's writing a white paper for a customer that is a one time analysis. Other times it's fitting a machine learning model and iterating model after model after model, getting the best one and putting it into production. Other times we are building dashboards. Other times we are automating reports. It's really fascinating what we can do, whether it's model fitting, forecasting, or even optimization algorithms. We work with a number of manufacturers to help optimize their production. So it's really cool, all these different industries we can touch, and within those industries, the different types of problems.
0: Yeah, I've actually really got into making white papers myself. For a while, when I was younger, I thought I would be like a graphic designer, so it kind of lets me get my design freak on while still staying within the realm of data science. That's pretty
4: awesome, and and that's such an important skill that's often missing, is the ability to put together all this work you've done from the data side to be consumable by the customer, that's an awesome skill set to have. That really completes a data science team.
0: It's like data viz, but not.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's not quite a plot, but it is visualizing the results of the data. So even if it's all text and numbers, you're you're making that visible to the user. That's that's really fantastic.
0: I wanted to ask you because some of my favorite people to interview are authors, um, and I know that you are a very established one yourself, and so me and all of my listeners will be wondering when we can see the third edition of your book are for everyone.
4: Uh, My publisher will be very happy that I'm making really good progress on the third edition. I have rewritten a large number of chapters from the previous edition, and I've also written new chapters for this new edition, and we are aiming to get it published early next year.
0: That's really exciting. We may have to do another podcast I've had a lot of authors on the podcast this season, and it's just so fun to really get into somebody's head with like this whole book they've created. I guess it's kind of a varied audience. Like some people will be like mid-level R programmers, and some people will be high, and some people will be beginners. Like how do you how do you cater to everyone, (laughs) as per the title?
4: So yeah, as you say, it's in the title. It is for everyone. And when I first wrote the first edition a while ago, I went into it with the thought, how would I like to have been taught this in grad school? Because we learned R in grad school, but we weren't necessarily taught it correctly. So I thought, how would I want to do that? How would I flow from here's a blank slate beginner and here's all the information they would need. And that is if you start in chapter one, installing R. But if you already have that, if you already have some knowledge, you can start somewhere in the middle. I try to make each chapter self-reliant, that you don't need to go look up something in a previous chapter, which was from an earlier chapter than that. I try to make it really easy for people to start somewhere and then keep building, building, building and learning more stuff. And I really just thought about it. How would I like to have been taught? What would have worked for me?
0: That's a really beautiful thing because I think I've probably mentioned to you, I learned R during my MBA, but I already knew that I wanted to learn it just because I wanted to be a programmer, but I hadn't had that statistical foundation until school. So statistics really got me in the mindset for R programming, but the way I was taught R wasn't exactly ideal. And so I actually really didn't do that well with it, um, the actual R programming, until I took the summer to like really look into every single aspect of it and really practice it myself. And then I went back and I, really could take advantage of the class, but it's really great that you have this book and that that's what you're thinking about because if people can like know recommended reading to fill in the holes that they're not gonna get taught, then they can like learn and fly with it in the class. It's not that the classes are bad, you know? It's that like, you, it's just, you you can't build an R star in a 45 minute session when, you know, you're on shared computers, it just doesn't work always. So I'm really excited. I think, you know, it'll be really cool to see how many classes, courses, universities really adopt your book as like, you know, recommended reading or even required reading because I think that, you know, a lot of professors are really happy to have that compliment to their teaching. Like it makes it easier for them.
4: It's always exciting when I hear someone tell me that they read it as part of their university. I'm like, that's really, really fantastic. I'm so glad you got exposed to it.
0: (laughs) It's like, where do you live? Want me to come speak (laughs) to?
4: Exactly, it's it's, it's great to hear. It's just great to hear people using your stuff. It's really a good feeling.
0: Well, speaking of statistics, uh, you are one of the longest members of the New York Open Statistical Programming Meetup, which I sadly did not know about when I was living in New York, and now I want to definitely attend on my visits. What's it been like to see the open source community grow since you've been involved? And maybe you can just tell us since when you've been involved.
4: It's really been amazing to see it grow. So the meetup started in April of 2009 and I started attending within the third or fourth meetup. So by that summer, I was already attending and I get there and there's only a handful of people in a room, but it was so amazing. You had these really great people, everyone was so nice, warm and welcoming. And it just felt like an amazing space to talk about R, talk about statistics. The meetup started as the R meetup and then later transitioned into the open statistical programming meetup. But even some of those early meetups, I remember we called it the dictionary meetup because we talked about R and Python and SAS and maybe Stata. at that time. I don't quite remember that. And then that group, Grew and kept growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and now we have over twelve thousand members.
0: Do all those members show up?
4: I wish we had a space that could hold twelve thousand. I wish we had a space that could hold over two hundred people. We're always looking for a bigger space to host us, and we've been very lucky that a lot of companies have very generously hosted us in their offices. Um, That makes it possible to make this happen. In a city like uh, New York, you can imagine space is at a premium. Depending on What the topic is, you'll see different people. And there's always a core group of people that will come no matter what because they just love learning from this meetup no matter. But then you'll see different people coming from different topics. If we have a talk geared towards finance, you see a lot of the people from the banks coming or the hedge funds. We have a talk that's more geared towards marketing, we have people from marketing coming. And it's really cool to see how different groups of people will come to different talks. So it's really important we get a variety of subjects, not just in terms of the R or Python or Julia or Go programming, but in how they're applied. And with all these members, we have still managed to hold on to those warm vibes. You walk in there, it's just a bunch of people are happy to be there, happy to be learning from other people. And it's just such a good feeling when you're there.
0: Well, that sounds a lot like what everybody says about the New York R Conference, which is going to be in person. September 9th and 10th, and I'm super excited, not only because I will be speaking, which is really exciting, but also because I haven't yet experienced this event in person. I only have been to both the New York and DC conferences online, and it's gonna be really fun to (laughs) experience the vibe that y'all all were talking about. You did a great job of recreating it online but what should attendees expect now that they have the option of attending in-person or online? What's that hybrid setup going to look like?
4: I am really excited to get this back in person. The past year, we held our New York conference and our government conference virtually, and we really tried hard to capture a lot of the vibe that you get from our in-person experience but I am so excited to go there and look people in the eye, shake their hand, and just be in a room full of people having so much fun. And that's what you can expect. A lot of fun and a lot of learning.
0: And I saw that the workshops are the week before. So that kind of gives people, it makes it almost like a two week experience because people will be in the mindset for that long. I think that's really exciting as well.
4: Yep, we have the workshops week before. And we're going to have a meetup that week. Also, we always try to have a meetup to be right around the same time as the conference. We're doing that again this year, and we're excited. This so it's going to be a packed full time of R statistical programming. We have the workshops, we have the meetup, we have the conference itself, and at the conference we have this fantastic lineup of more speakers to be announced soon. And people are going to learn about plotting, productionalization, machine learning. They'll learn about R and Python, frequentist versus Bayesian. And we are going to have a ton of food. We're gonna have pizza, ice cream, snacks, sodas, beer, whiskey, whatever it is, we're gonna have a ton of it. And it's just gonna be a great time for people to see each other, either seeing old friends they haven't seen in a long time or making new friends. The conference is generally drawn from mostly the New York Metro area. We do have people traveling in from other parts of the country and even from overseas. But I imagine this year, the people attending in person will be mostly from the New York Metro, maybe up to Boston, down to DC. And now that we're going to be virtual also, that allows people who are around the world who might have a difficult time coming to New York during a normal year, let alone with travel restrictions, to come and experience it. And we're really excited to open this up to people everywhere.
0: So we are back to our show. And I want to turn the focus to Ijimaka and Asma, who work in healthcare. I'm curious if COVID and the whole pandemic time has affected your work with healthcare data at all, and how?
1: I technically started at Kaiser after the pandemic started, and so I've never really actually been in the office. Like I, I'm not completely sure if I have a desk, but um it's it's been like. Interestingly enough, like, I feel in a lot of ways minimally impacted because a lot of my research, they're, like, longitudinal studies, but they're, like, retrospective longitudinal studies. And so we're using data from people who have, like, been diagnosed with cancer, like, in the 2000s, but they got diagnosed, like, forever ago. Well, I shouldn't say forever ago, but, like, not yesterday, you know? And, <laughs> and so... We're using like existing data, so like it's. I'm technically a lot of my like my day to day hasn't been impacted at all by COVID work wise specifically. But what has interestingly been slightly impacted is that a lot of my research does require um, working with almost like more physical things. We have a partnership with another like research center where we're going to be like sending biospecimens, and it used to be like kind of like, I mean, I want to say like, I want to caveat and say I am luckily not involved in this. I just hear the meetings about it, <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, guys, that sounds rough, but um, they, <laughs> like, the mail is a hot mess, and so when you're sending things like biospecimens, you want them to remain cold for a certain period of time. So, like, having to, like, accommodate that because you, when we're working with um, people's, like, tumor specimens, you don't actually want to accidentally ruin the specimen because, like, it's on, it's at Kaiser for a long period of time just in case it ever needs to get tested again or any other, like, thing needs to be done. And so, like, there's all these, like, things we have to consider when it comes to, like, sending around specimens that, like, luckily I do not um, have to consider it other than like be in the meeting and be empathetic, but that is like impacting our research in an interesting way. And same thing also with like scans data, it's like impacting our research. Like a lot of the research assistants work is to like go to like certain like Kaiser like repositories, but like with COVID requirements and things like that, things are just like slower. And it's really funny to say like things are slower because academia is already so slow (laughs) and things have become even slower. So sometimes I'm like, I'm like, wow, I've been on this project forever and we're still just talking about certain things. Because my research is so cancer oriented, like I don't do infectious diseases. I don't really even do like healthcare utilization. I know that's been like a new crop up of type of research projects where it's like The impacts on like breast cancer screening in like a time of COVID because people are like not going in for care the way they used to. My project's very much about like body composition and cancer survivorship. So like it's the COVID aspect isn't really coming into play, especially because we're not using any data that I think is like post 2012,
0: maybe. Wow, I'm really glad you said that and explained it so thoroughly because I don't know why I had in my head that COVID is such a big crisis that everybody in the healthcare sector will stop what they're doing and be totally immersed in it. I don't know why I had that feeling or opinion, but it's definitely a good one to dispel because it's clearly not true. How about you, Asma? How is your work affected or not during the time of the pandemic?
2: At my previous job, because I've only been with Pursue Care since this February, but in my previous job, we were doing a lot of the healthcare utilization research that Ijumaka referenced and long-term longitudinal studies looking at health outcomes for cancer, for other disease groups. Um, But when COVID-19 happened, um, I just remember... Them just being like, "Here's one monitor in your computer. <laughs> Go home and figure <laughs> it out." And also, we're putting everything on pause, and we're gonna do COVID nineteen for thirteen hours a day. So that was that was a lot. I just remember having to deal with like the stress of, "Am I going to be okay?" or the people I love going to be okay. Also with the stress of like having to very quickly understand the dynamics of COVID-19, which we also didn't know when we're figuring out like day to day. Um, that, was, that, was not, that was not good uh, for, for a long time for me and, and for my team. And I think the only solace really we took was in being there for one another and understanding what we were going through. A lot of us felt like we were trying to do our best in terms of communicating our findings and and trying to impress upon people just how serious this stuff was. But um, just seeing the numbers just every day, going to work, and by going to work meaning like walking two feet from my bed and then logging on and just seeing the numbers roll in every day, that was a lot.
0: I can imagine, and even... For me, who was not working professionally with COVID data, we were still getting daily text updates of the numbers in Louisiana and seeing them get worse, or even just receiving that text message, I would think would be pretty triggering for me. I say I would think because I can't say I really focused on it, (laughs) but. now we're actually getting those text messages again and so that is very stressful to be confronted in any way with the data and the reports. Asma, I know now that Your work is focused around the opioid crisis and opioid addictions, and Ijimaka, your work is focused on cancer research, like you said, and so I'm wondering if you have any stats or information recorded on how COVID affected your particular areas, even if you didn't personally work with the COVID data?
1: I'm unfortunately going with the same. No, I haven't noticed anything just because I haven't looked at 2020 or 2021 data. At Kaiser, I have access to an absurd amount of data at my fingertips, but I try to be very careful to not for fun. First of all, it's not, it's not okay as per our IRB to just like sift through data just because we have access to it. So I'm always just looking at things that are relevant to the research questions at hand. And because none of my IRBs are allowed to use data past a certain date, like I think, like I said earlier, like either 2012, 2015, I'm not quite sure. Um, I haven't looked at any current cancer data. Um, So that's always like a thing that I try to be careful of where it's like, um, just because we have access to the data and I have access to like what is quite possibly an absurd amount of data, um, <laughs> doesn't mean I should look at it.
0: I feel you, yeah. It's definitely important to prioritize those ethics and that respect of privacy and security. I gotta say, y'all have really opened my mind in terms of what the role of analysts in the healthcare space is during COVID, because I just didn't know how it was working. Was it like, should we put our best analysts on COVID projects because it's a crisis? Is that something that should have happened or not?
1: My PI is not an infectious disease specialist. Like, she is a cancer researcher. And so, like, does it make sense for her to pivot on that when, like, there are tons of infectious disease specialists at Kaiser who are working on it and are very informed and they have their own analysts who have been working on infectious disease projects with them for so long. So I think, like, if there was a need and they needed the PIs to pivot and they were asking for additional help, I think she definitely would have volunteered. But I also think, is really important in healthcare to stay in your lane, you know? It's like it's like Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Like, yeah, Osma knows. <laughs> it's yeah. We saw in the beginning of COVID, like there was just so many people who became armchair epidemiologists. And I was just like so yes. annoyed by it. And so I I love the fact that my PI is like, but what I know is I know breast cancer. I know colorectal cancer. I know body composition. I know about like What are the ways that we are pushing, pushing the area to stop thinking about um, the effect of body composition as like obesity, but really about like the makeup of your body? Like, where is your fat stored? Where's your adiposity stored? How is that affecting your organs? Like, she's like, that's my lane and I'm sticking to it. And I really respect her for doing that. And so I'm not at all bothered about not being on COVID data. I also think everyone who um, was working on COVID flamed out. Like, I think they're so tired. Mm-hmm. I think they really struggled, and while I also like flamed out, <laughs> I didn't flame out because of that. And and I think like if I had to deal with like what was going on like family wise with COVID and like isolationish wise, but also have to like every day be like, but I can't focus on myself because what I'm doing work wise is so important. I don't know <laughs> if I would have been able to handle it personally.
3: I wanna just hear, here to that and say, uh, so I, I don't work in, in those fields at all. And even though like something that was being mentioned earlier, what is fun about data science is that you don't necessarily have to tie yourself to one type of thing. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> like I, I, there was a group of people that were trying to do a, um, a Kaggle competition with COVID data I mean, I was really in a buzzkill,
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. and
3: like just commented, like, um, "Okay, well, given that I don't think that our group has any epidemiologists or infectious disease experts, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I think that you know, if we want to make some dashboards that are useful, um, some like apps that you know in real time show the rates of various you know COVID metrics uh, for." whatever places in in a more useful way, like there's some maps that exist, but I don't like this map for this reason. We could make a variation of that. But if we think that we're going to do anything more meaningful than that, when there's people that dedicate their entire lives to this research, that's pretty, pretty silly. And also like, it just, it's such a disrespect to the people that do that work. And it's also just essentially saying that everyone is interchangeable and that uh, your life's research doesn't amount Doesn't mean anything.
0: (laughs) We have to still be people during this pandemic. You know, we still have our lives. We still have our health. Not a lot's changed in that respect. So, yeah, I, I... think it's really important to keep that research going that wasn't about COVID, even though we were all traumatized. Asma, do you want to tell me about how the opioid crisis has been affected by COVID? I know a lot about it just because I've lost people to it.
2: Well, first off, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that you've uh, personally experienced this. Um, I think one of the things that drives me is... Um, working for this company is that I've also lost lost people to, to this crisis. And I think many of us have in the company. So that's something that you know drives us every day in doing the work that we do. And we've definitely seen COVID-19 um, worsen things across the board um, at many different levels for our patients and for the people trying to reach these people and dispense the care that they need. So um, it's it's not a secret that substance use disorder is very much a disease of desperation and it's very strongly associated with socioeconomic desperation and alienation and um, just the most vulnerable of us in, in society have experienced that um, at a magnitude that many of us have not. So COVID-19 has been behind huge surges in overdoses and deaths um, pretty much nationwide, but more pronounced in, in certain areas. So we had to grapple with that. And thankfully, as as a company, we are a telehealth company. So we are able to reach the patients that we need to through an app, through a telehealth platform. So that's that's certainly been, been helpful um, during this pandemic, because so many things have changed. So many clinics have had to uh, just reduce their operations. So we had that to fall back on. We're still reeling from that. We will for a long time. And uh, I'm hoping that with vaccinations and with just a greater understanding and awareness of of the social determinants of health, uh, particularly in this population, that, that we will turn that into action and start addressing these things more aggressively because we, we really need to be.
0: I agree. And I'm glad that someone like you is on the forefront of helping alleviate these people's pain through data, because that's what it really is, pain, and, you know, a lot of us understand addiction in whatever form, and when you're there, you feel like that's only, your only option, and it's hard to quantify that experience, but I do feel like we have to, in order to really tackle the discrepancies in care and biases and start to figure out a solution.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you were to ask me maybe five, ten years ago, you know, who who is the the socioeconomic um strata of society that would fall uh to this disease, I I wouldn't have guessed that it could just be ordinary people that that injured themselves or or, or whatnot were prescribed and then, you know, they fall into addiction. So th- Certainly working at Pursue Care and, and learning more about, about this population has really opened my eyes to just how uh, vulnerable we may all be uh, to this. I feel a lot of hope uh, with the, the work that a lot of groups and some government entities have made in trying to better understand the social determinants of health and help data analysts like myself uh, to um, access it and to try to put it to good work. I'll plug certain ones here that I use uh, very frequently. The CDC has really good data on overdose and uh, overdose deaths. It's very, very challenging to measure those things, but they're, they're really making uh, great strides in, in, in capturing that, um, they also have this metric, Social Vulnerability Index, uh, but also broken down into 15 different social factors like unemployment, access to public transportation, disability, uh, minorities, and I think that's just fantastic. It's not just applicable to the work that I do, but really I mean, any healthcare work that you can think of. Um, the University of Wisconsin has um, really good stuff at the county level. Um, they just aggregate all these different data sets from government and industry and clean it up and, and have it freely available uh, on their website. So more and more I'm seeing people use these, these resources And I think it goes such a long way in helping us combat the opioid crisis because, uh, as we know, I mean, things like stigma, intergenerational trauma, structural racism, like harm reduction interventions and legislations, like all of that are... Are, are key to, to really um, getting a handle of this crisis and making it better because medication alone and, and access to doctors alone isn't going to fix it.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how many factors go into one problem and one solution. And I've always really taken a stance that something so numerically focused like a statistical regression can mean so much when you're able to really narrow down which of those factors is the most actionable, which is the one that is the most pervasive within the problem. I think that that is a real connection between the world of numbers that people mistakenly think is cold and calculating and really the heart of humanity. And that's why I love being in this field. So I definitely want to talk to you more about that and about the analysis that you've done in terms of these factors. For now, I want to spin the attention briefly on ethical AI. I don't know yet how much ethical AI is a topic of focus in y'all's careers, but it's a big focus for my career because I have spoken a lot about the people in our field, who are doing the most work in ethical AI. It's not me, but because I'm a media person, I kind of tend to be the platform for people to really showcase their work. And if any of you have any insights on ethical AI, it would be awesome to share them now because it's been a real focus this season.
3: As I had said before, I my work doesn't really involve making decisions that impact people directly or it's not or as individuals it's making decisions about like a package um an individual product and thinking about um the products as the individuals all the people will receive it in the same way so it's not like in any traditional way intersecting with the kinds of things that ethical ai is typically concerned with um but this has also helped me expand my definition of what I think about as ethical AI to include concerns of broader social welfare, like employment opportunities, automation and robotics, worker rights and safety uh, externalities that influence climate change. So like there's a part of my team that's concerned with robotics and automation at fulfillment centers and improvements in this space can reduce costs, which is good for the average consumer and um reduce injury and and physical strain which is good for the warehouse worker and reduce Amazon warehouse labor demands which is not good for from the perspective of the displaced worker and um, so there's things like that that I think about like how how do the advancements in robotics and automation uh how do those things impact? Um, Employment opportunities for lesser skilled workers and who are those lesser skilled workers and where they live and how are they impacted when um, a fulfillment center, uh, you know, exists and then suddenly doesn't really need so many people uh, kind of reminiscent of like, will we end up with something like car manufacturers in Michigan. And so there's good things and there's bad things, um, this creative destruction of progress. Um, and then my immediate, my immediate team's work is focused on identifying and or creating the minimally sufficient, sufficient packaging. And it's very easy for customers to see an oversized box or an abundance of air pillows and filler. I think, wow, Amazon, are you even trying? And too much packaging is waste, but a damaged product that ends up in a landfill is also waste and which is worse. Of course, the answer depends. But ultimately, we want to be as minimally wasteful as possible, and we want to have net-zero carbon emissions, and we do not want to contribute to the existential threat that is climate change. And as we know, the effects of climate change impact regions of the world differently, and those regions are often correlated with wealth and ethnicity and economic opportunity and capacity to recover from natural disasters that are exacerbated by climate change. So I try to think about those things when I think about like the significance or the impact of my work, and I try to look for ways to advocate for and internalize uh, the climate-related externalities that are caused by packaging decisions, um, because our team is in a unique position to care about whatever people care about and to care about things like um, carbon emissions, um, specifically with respect to packaging. There are other departments in Amazon that also care about carbon emissions with respect to the things they have control over. In our case, it's the packaging, uh, which also is kind of paired with the um, like damaged items themselves. So anyway, I think about those things as a kind of extension of ethical AI um, that like how do uh, in essence, kind of these two, two different aspects of how, how does automation and robotics That can lead to improved working conditions, but also displaced workers. Like, what do I think about that? And I don't really have an um, an answer. It's just a thing I think about. And in addition to how does the work that I do impact the future of this planet? (laughs) And, And that makes me want to do a good job because even though it's because I understand that these the impacts of climate change are not universally felt. Um, though eventually they will be if we do nothing about it. Right. Thank you for
0: sharing that because really the fate of ethical AI depends on who's in charge, who's in the room, who's managing. And we need a diverse set of people in charge so that we can prioritize what needs to be prioritized. And we can really get to the brunt of the issue by debating. So that leads me to ask all of you as experts in this field, what do you think hiring for data science should look like? How do we make sure that we're bringing in the right talent, that we're reaching out to a representative sample of people that we're touching all our bases, All of those little idioms. How do we make sure that we're hiring fairly?
1: Asma, you've been hiring recently,
2: right? Yes, will be shortly. And I think, you know, for me, experience is important. Technical skills are important. I think it's important for anyone in a position to hire. But for me, it's not, the end all be all for me. the The key is is someone that is able to learn and enjoy learning. Uh, someone that approaches problems uh, from a perspective that um, is underappreciated, and to me, that's what makes diversity so, so important to have um, in really any field utilizing data science, but especially so in in healthcare and and high-impact industries. Because way too many times I think we've seen, you know, we were just talking about ethical AI and, and the implications of that. Way too many times we've seen, you know, just these algorithms and models go into production and then we find out that uh, they've increased uh, disparities that were already there and uh, it had to do um, mostly because the teams making those models uh, just <laughs> didn't have the right people at the table to, to be able to flag those things in advance. So for me, that's that's always at the, at the back of my mind. Um, I we, we are. We are doing our best to find those people. Um, many times, you know, we're open to mentoring them. Maybe they're not the most technically skilled. Uh, but, you know, if, if they show that promise, that initiative, um, it's definitely someone we want in our corner, for sure.
1: I would agree with everything you said. Like, I don't have a lot to say about, I think, pipeline, per se, like how to find the best people. But what I think is really important is, I think even us, anyone who still has the best of intentions comes into the interview with tons of bias often. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in the like weird data science mayhem where it's like, they must know these seven languages and they must have done all of these things. And I think it's really important to think about like, what is your like must have versus what is like you need to they can have a good foundation and they can learn um, because what I'm starting to notice is that when people are really looking for the person who is like the jack of all trades, they've done every single thing relevant <laughs> in data science somehow, what you're actually, who you're actually hiring are the people who have the financial ability to take two years off to learn all of that. And I think that's a very specific subset of people (laughs) and I don't think there's anything wrong with them I just think that like who are you bringing in that way um when I recently helped with hiring I was really into just like non-traditional backgrounds and like interviewing people who you wouldn't typically interview because you're like well they haven't done all this other stuff and it's like but okay what have they done do you really need all this other stuff like there's been so many times I've been like interviewed where people are like well, like you haven't done all this stuff, like you haven't built this like type of model. And I'm like, Okay, what's the day to day at the job? And they like described the like past five projects and I'm like, Okay, but no one built that kind of model. So why are you looking for it? <laughs> so I think it's like what are the biases you are personally bringing to the table by your expectation of what it means to be a very good data scientist? And I don't think the understanding of what it means to be a very good data scientist is really helped. Ooh, I'm rambling, but like by all these like data scientists like thought leaders that you see on Twitter, where they're like, <laughs> I have so many feelings. Um,
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, those like twenty part threads on how to make it into the industry. Oh yeah.
1: God. It's like, have a master's in seven different things. And it's like, babe, what money? <laughs> yeah.
0: We all know that, you know, anyone who doesn't accommodate a diverse, whatever that means, environment is going to be on the wrong side of history. I mean, it's a fact at this point, And people are scrambling to try to make it work. And there's part of me that's like, well, you lose. And part of me that's like, well... I can point you in the right direction. You know, what do I get like seriously like last minute is not good enough when it comes to this. Um I realized soon after I started the podcast that if I only focused on women per se, you know, I am a lot of my male friends were coming to me being like, well, this podcast isn't for us. I'm like, no, it's for everybody. (laughs) Just like it's going to amplify certain voices. And so then I rebranded kind of myself as the data femme interviewing anyone who might have a different story. And the thing is, like when I find the most passionate people on Twitter, it's a backwards way because I find the people who are posting about data science on Twitter, and a lot of times, not every time, they do have some of, some tra- like untraditional backstory. Um, whether it's substance abuse, not finishing high school, you know, it could be English as a second language um, in a way that you would never notice in a personal setting. You know, you might think somebody really speaks. Very well in a personal setting, but then when they're learning something as hard, like, oh my God, I can't learn to code in English, and that's my first language. Like, (laughs) imagine learning in French. Yes, like, if you hear me speak French, you might think that I... I'm fluent and I probably am, but I don't want to learn to freaking code in French. It's hard enough, you know? And I started learning French when I was five. So that's like a t- that's like a type of diversity I never recognized. But there's a lot of stories to tell that kind of intersect but might not be, you know, what you think, and that's what I'm really devoted to.
3: When I was in grad school, I was like all proofs and no code. So in my in my study groups, um, if there was any coding anything involved, I would that I would make somebody else do it, and I would just do the like by hand proof things and passed off all all things code. So I was a miserable coder uh, for most of grad school, and and just kind of climbed my out my way out, and I was okay by towards the end of it. And it wasn't until I really worked that I. Discovered. I. I mean, I would write like like four nested for loops uh, to do uh, work on a million rows of data in 2014 when there was you know uh, all sorts of other packages and tools that existed. But I was just in such a goddamn hurry that I couldn't be. I couldn't even. I couldn't even pause to learn what dplyr was and just.
1: push forward with ah, brute force. But how much of that do you think is that like, this is something that I had as a major complaint in my grad school program where they don't actually teach you how to program. Oh, it's, just Lord, all no. the, yeah. Yeah, it's just all of a sudden, it's like you're doing these homework assignments, and then they give you example code, and you run it, but you don't really know what you're doing. Like I oh,
3: 100%. Yeah. So it's like my first assignment of coding was was after so our, our professor was just mad at us and didn't like us because of something that one of our classmates said. One of our classmates, it was a macroeconomics class and our classmates said to him uh, when she saw him in passing for some reason was like <laughs> it's not that um it's not that no one likes um macro it's just they they don't respect it.
1: oh my gosh
3: Ah! Ah! and then she and she had said it was it was something like it was almost I almost remember the quote but something just like that it's just just that we don't care is either she said just that we don't care about it or that we don't respect it and I was just my jaw was on the floor when she reported this back and it was clear that he just we were the class from hell and he was going to be the teacher from hell to match it was after exams were done it was past the point when anything was allowed to be due and when it was just time for grading and because everyone's a ta and we all had our you know to grade and he was going to be grading our finals and then he assigned us this one last final thing that was a matlab assignment to do a dynamic programming um, economic um, equilibrium problem with matlab which costs money and no one has it and no and there was no code provided and no nothing (laughs) but you had to submit it get a grade and that's like within four days and I mean
1: so that certainly put a bad taste in my mouth yeah I was like this sucks I will (laughs) never
0: do
3: this so yeah I took
1: in grad school a programming class that was targeted towards like stats master's programs and stats PhD students and like I always say that I was like one of the like best and worst things I've ever done because I got Mm -hmm. such a better fundamental understanding of certain things. Like sometimes I offhandedly mention things, but at the same time, it was like a programming class. And I think inherently almost every programming class is built like a weed out class. I don't know if you guys had this in like undergrad, but there would be certain like programs where they would like start easy, right? Because they'd be like, we want to get people interested in physics. And so you take a <laughs> class and you're like, wow, I love this. This is fascinating. This is changing my life. And then you would take the next class and then you would immediately be failing, be so miserable that you drop out. And so mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was like how that class felt like to me, where it's like, if you make it through this, you are strong. But also it's like, does learning have to be that way? Does like learning mm-hmm. how to program have to why do I need to suffer to learn?
3: <laughs> it's oh, like, my goodness. Yeah. it's so lame.
1: But I think that's like how a lot of like these like classes are when it comes to programming or like these more like technical concepts. It's like, it's either like, they don't teach you how to program at all and you go into the real world and you're like, why do I not know how to do anything? Like I'm now working with messy data and I'm so confused because mm-hmm. all you've ever seen is clean data or they, you do have a programming class and you Um, it's so bad that sometimes people mention things like a garbage collector and like a shiver goes down your spine because you're like, I can't talk about this right now. (laughs) So it's like, I, I think it's like, and um, because maybe someone in grad school would hear this, I do think it's a great class. I do think the professor was (laughs) really good. I just also think it was so hard and I didn't know, I don't know if it needed to be that hard. And it was also extremely hard yet like you would get a good grade. I don't like classes where I went to office hours and I'm like, I got a 10 on the midterm. Like I straight up got a 10 (laughs) out of a hundred. Out of (laughs) a hundred. And he was like, and he was like, and I was like, I'm really worried I'm going to fill this class. Should I drop out? And he was like, what? There's some people who got a zero. You're good.
3: (laughs) I love that you said that. The R community in general and the people that use it just seem so much more uh inviting um but just from the beginning the community of uh, the professors and the students and everyone that was that was using R were just so much
0: more welcoming and that is exactly what this podcast is for to inform us how we can be better learners better coders better people in the workplace and in the industry at large and all of your insights are really getting us there. And I want to reiterate that the New York R conference that Asma and I will be speaking at is a wonderful event to learn about all the programming gaps in your training that you really, really want to get started on and know about And like I mentioned before, if you haven't yet signed up for this conference, you can use the promo code DATAFEM20 to receive 20% off your order. And I really hope to see a lot of you there in person because it's so exciting to be able to be in that electric environment again where we all learn from each other and are collectively learning new skills at the same time, in the same place, with beers, with wine, with pizza. It's going to be a great time. We've still got some episodes coming up for Data Femme Season 2. And so stay tuned for that on Twitter. And if you haven't signed up for my newsletter at dikiodata.com. Please do that. You will get all the updates there. I can't wait to see you for this next episode. And I know that you will enjoy it as much as you enjoyed this one.